Hello, and welcome to The Solo Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett, and I've got a fascinating guest today, and I say fascinating in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, I've known Eric for a number of years. Uh, full disclosure, he and I uh, are good friends, uh, and he's a, a member in the Transformational Leadership Council with me, which is where I actually first met him. And I don't know if he remembers this, but uh, uh, he and his uh, future bride were sitting in front of me and my, my late wife on an airplane, and we were flying... Uh, to a TLC, a Transformational Leadership Council meeting. And they were talking and then, yeah, lo and behold, they were there. And, that, and I think that was the, uh, the, the, the one that we did in Denver in, in, in which uh, The Secret was filmed. I mean, there was, I mean, so just all kinds of stuff. But yeah, that's where I first became familiar with you. And then over the years, things have just kind of transpired. So Eric and made, uh, Ed Meadies, I'll get, yeah, get it out right here. Uh, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. Now, I, I don't, I, I think you know this, but I actually met Cynthia like many years before, even before I ever did any speaking. I was asked to speak at some inner city LA school as part of some thing she was putting together, maybe the beginning of Unstoppable. I don't even know, but I met her way before I ever knew about TLC or any of that kind of stuff. And so when she showed up at TLC, it was like a, a reconnection. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. And then Cynthia, for those of you, and most of you are familiar with this, she is, is my, my wife. Yeah. After my late wife died, Pam died, uh, in 2010, uh, Cynthia and I, uh, ended up getting connected and uh, one thing kind of led to another and, and here we are. So I, I didn't know that that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Way back. I'm talking like more than 15 years ago, it was this cool little inner city school with all the tough kids and yeah. it was such a great day. It was so, it was so fascinating. Oh, that's, that would be Cynthia. I mean, she's right in the middle of that mix. Yeah. So, yeah, now I'm going to, yeah, I open up everything with you know, kind of a conversation around what does the soul of business mean to you? And I'm going to work and you know, weave in your history here a little bit because you have an absolutely fascinating, not only life, but career. Um, uh, and, you know, we were talking just before we went live here about, you know, just kind of your experience in, in the COVID lockdown. You know, you're, you're living in the DR, in the Dominican Republic right now. And, yeah, that's not bad. Walk on the beach, uh, just kind of yeah, bask in the sun. You're you're a native of South Africa, and you grew up basically in Canada, yeah. and then you know, and kind of went from there. Now, and I'm going to get to my question here in a minute, but just to kind of you know, kind of paint a picture a little bit, you are a serial entrepreneur, and you can't see this right now if you're listening to the audio, but he's wearing a T-shirt right now that says Wild Fit. And dun, 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 uh, which is a fascinating approach to diet. And I say diet, not in the vernacular that most people are familiar with, but this wild fit is, is really a, a way of living, um, you know, lifestyle um, that is phenomenal. I, I, I did his program a couple of years back, but yeah, that's one thing that you've done. You've also, you know, I, mean, yeah, I mean, this is just crazy. Uh, you, you worked on the Avatar franchise, uh, you know, the CGI that you know, kind of went into that. You worked on the Transformer uh, franchise. You worked uh, Pirates, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Iron Man. So, you know, the whole Hollywood media thing, but also military research and you know, R&D, uh, mobile com uh, computing. Um, own companies in four countries. You speak on the stage in 25 countries around the world. You've been on stage with Tony Robbins. You've been on stage with, uh, yeah, President Clinton, uh, Richard Branson, Jack Canfield. You know, Jack, you know, we all have in some way, shape, or form before a TLC been on stage with Jack. 
Where did you get bit by the entrepreneurial bug, number one? And the number two out of that is going to be, where does the soul of business come into this for you? You know, I'll tell you, I, uh, the entrepreneurial bug is kind of a side story. With the very first time I did an event with Tony Robbins, he, I, was a, I've been, I was an emergency relief speaker. They, they, their, their other speakers couldn't make it. And somebody said to Tony, you got to try this guy, Eric. And Tony didn't want to. Like, he just didn't know me, didn't want to. But they had no choice. So I show up there and Tony's like, I'm not introducing this guy. If he bombs, I don't want to be anywhere near it. And then he and I meet in the hallway briefly. And uh, he goes, you know, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I'm like, well, you're asking me to do Chet Holmes' presentation on 11 days notice with his slides. It's not ideal. And he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Well, I said, listen, Tony, I'm totally confident that it's going to be a great presentation. It just might not be exactly what you're expecting. And we hit it off. When I, when I didn't bow down, you know, he, we hit it off. And I went out and I did my presentation. But the funny bit was he changed his mind and decided to introduce me. Now, the problem was it was an entirely Chinese audience. So I had sent over a bio and, you know, the Eric is an entrepreneur, started his first company in mobile computing, sold it nine years later. That's what it actually said at the beginning. But it got translated to Chinese and then Tony changed his mind, wanted it, couldn't, they couldn't find the English version. So he just got them to translate it from Chinese back to English, which oh, doesn't really work. So, yeah. So Tony gets on stage and he goes, you guys, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. I met him out in the hallway. I'm really excited. He started his first business when he was only nine years old. Like, oh no, <laughs> this is a, what do you do? Like you can't go up and contradict that, but now you allow the lie to stand and it's not a lie. And you know, what are you going to do? But then I realized it was actually totally truthful. It was totally truthful. I had hippie parents and uh, my, my latent hippie parents, you know, they, South Africa was a couple of years behind. So my parents were, uh, you know, they, they went through the Elvis and the, and, the, and, the, and the Beatles things and they were going through all their, their, their the hippie movement. And, and so they, and they were very, there was a huge socialist bent in the house. And my mom went to the schools of social work and she had all these social working friends that would come to the house and sit around and talk about how awful capitalists were and how, and they'd have these huge parties. And at the parties, they would bring beer and the beer, well, there wasn't enough room in the fridge. So at around about nine or 10 years old, I cocked onto this real quickly and I went, I'd make ice for days. I'd make ice, fill the bathtub, and then I would meet them at the door, grab their two for a beer. And mind you, it was a hell of a thing to carry at that age. And I'd carry it down the hallway, take all the beer out, put it in the bathtub, and all night I'd sell their beer back to them. <laughs> that was my first business. <laughs> my first business was alcohol distribution. And, and, and this is not, and, and by the way, what's great about it is think about it. I had learned this in school. I had. I'd learned that the original economic relationship between Canada and America worked like this. Canada would cut down its trees, sell its trees to America. America would turn it into furniture and sell it back to Canada. And Canada was losing every time. And I was like, I'm just doing the same thing. I'm taking your beer. I'm adding value to it. And I'm selling your beer back to you. Then, plain, 10, 11 o'clock, people had a few too many drinks. They're getting lazy. They're not coming to the store. So I added a new feature. Beer delivery. So 10 years old, walking around with two bottles of beer, beer. And what I found was that where they were only prepared to pay about 25 cents for to buy back one of their own beers cold, they were willing to pay a buck, a full buck for a, a, a dollar, like right delivered to them. And, and in a very real sense, that is what um, birthed me into entrepreneurship. The concept of adding value, the concept of unit by unit generation of profit rather than minute by minute. And that, that, that was actually the birth of my entrepreneurial spirit. Say that again. The concept, the concept of unit by unit profitability yep. rather than minute by minute profitability. Yep. 
I'm glad you did that because that's the first time I've ever said that, and I'm going to keep that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I mark it out because yeah, if you're selling time for money, yeah, you have got a finite resource. It is not renewable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't go to the bank and get more time. So uh, you're gonna yeah, that's a rabbit hole you don't want to go down as an entrepreneur. Exactly. Um, it's 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 brilliant. It's brilliant. And the idea of value. Yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about value. Yeah, because I've got a very specific skew towards you know, value creation. What? Yeah. What? What's your uh, when you're talking about adding value? What are you really doing? Uh, I I think in order to kind of unpack how I think about value, you have to look at it from both perspectives: the perspective of the person adding the value and the perspective of the person receiving it. So, you know, very much on this idea of unit by unit instead of minute by minute. I remember Zig Ziglar many, many, many years ago listening to Zig and I just loved the way he told stories and had that Southern Baptist kind of sound about him. And he's like, he's like, you know, I went and I saw this Jaguar and I wanted the Jaguar so badly. And I took a look at the job I had and I took a look at the Jaguar and I took a look at how much the Jaguar cost. And then I figured out how many hours I was going to have to work to get that Jaguar. And I found out that I was going to have the Jaguar by the time I was 58 years old. <laughs> and he goes, then, then a buddy of mine introduced me to a job where I could sell on commission. And instead I took a look at the price of the Jaguar and I looked at how many units that I have to sell. And I thought, well, I can sell that many units in a year. And so value adding from the perspective of the giver is an accelerator. It's an accelerator in every sense of the word. The very best marketing principle I could ever share with anybody is add more value than your client is expecting. When we have polled our WildFit clients, for example, when we poll our clients a year on after they've done the program, we ask them how many people on average have you spoken to about WildFit, which is the ultimate consumer measurement, right? The ultimate measurement is, and by the way, it's the ultimate measurement whether they're happy or upset. In this case, they're happy. But the average number is 50. The average number. Now, bear in mind, there's a bunch of introverts in there that are not going out and you know looking for people to talk to, but the average is 50. And that's because we continually and consistently exceed the expectations of what they wanted to have. So giving value is an accelerator. That's from my perspective. Then from the client's perspective, I, I, I really think of it like this, that, you know, somebody's investing in something with you, you know, they're investing their time and their attention, their mind share and their money or some combination of those things. And what they're looking for is a return on their investment. And, and, you know, you can go to the bank and get one point, whatever these days, or you might find a fund that can give you 4.2 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, what if you invested in a fund and you were only expecting 6%, but you got 15%, how would you feel about that? You know, like, how would you feel when you're, when you, when you, when your needs are being met beyond what your expectations are? What that I think does is it creates uh, trust and loyalty. And, and so all of a sudden, you're going to keep going back to that same place. You're going to want, hey, when I invest there, I get a good ROI every time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the keys there is it exceeds expectations. One of the ways that I've worked with value is, yeah, how do people feel about themselves when they're in the presence of you and or your product or service? Yeah. And if they are feeling uplifted, and this kind of goes to how I define capitalism to begin with, purpose, or not capitalism, but purpose of business, purpose of business is to uplift the experience of being alive on the planet. That's the purpose of business as far as I'm concerned. Yep. And if I'm doing that through my service or product, people are going to feel good about themselves. And if I'm exceeding that expectation, I'm off to the races in so yeah. many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No question. Where does this circle back? You know, and I'm going to, you know, the soul of business is what we call this thing. So how does the soul of business play into this? And, and partly part of that has to do with how do you define that? Or what does that evoke for you when you think about soul of business? 
Well, well, funny enough, you, you kind of answered it for me in a sense, because you're talking about, you know, the business is there to really uplift the human experience, right? Like that, it's, it, it really is about that. But I would, I would say this, you can evaluate any business, in my opinion, and you can take a look at um, how much soul is present in the business. And it has to do with the focus of the, call it the owner, the manager, or the board of directors. What is their focus? And so, you know, uh, um, there, there are, say, many companies, say, for example, out-of-control pharmaceutical companies, like out-of-control ones. I'm not saying all pharmaceuticals are bad, but we all know that there have been abuses, right? And so that particular board has no soul. There is no soul in that, in that particular construct of business. Whereas somebody else who's been sitting and striving and working at solving a vaccine for this thing here or a drug to solve this problem, they have done that to elevate the human experience. There's a ton of soul present in that. The guy who invented exogenous insulin was a Canadian guy and he discovered it and banting. And he, he was a very interesting guy. Um, a weird twist is that a, a distant relative of his in the United Kingdom was also named Banting, who was massively obese in the mid 1800s and turned it all around uh, by managing his insulin. And weirdly unrelated, Banting discovers exogenous insulin. And what does he do with soul? He sells the patent to the University of Toronto for $1 because he had a belief that anybody who required exogenous insulin had the right to it. But then it lost its soul when it moved into the pharmaceutical industry and became patentable. And all of a sudden it became about profits. So if the company is all about <clears throat> narrow-minded profit, then you're, then, then the soul is gone, yeah. you know? And, and, and that to me is where the balance kind of exists. My most soul for business that I've ever started. Like when I started my mobile equipment company, I would tell you that there was a huge amount of soul present in the way I treated people and the way I systemized the business and the way I treated clients. But the truth is I was selling mobile data capture equipment and wireless networking, and I was doing it to make money. I was, I was in my 20s. That's what you're kind of supposed to do as you're discovering who you are. And my next several businesses, I, you know, I went to, I bought a movie studio, as you mentioned, and I worked on all these big movies. And, we, we, and, and funny enough, we weren't actually doing CGI. We were doing the practical effects. So we were building shit and blowing it up. You know, so like it was a pretty cool you job. The right? fun stuff. <laughs> it was the fun stuff. Yeah, the CGI, is, that's, by the way, I, I, I'm going to annoy a few people at, at ILM here, but to me, the, the, the pure computer graphics thing is the absence of soul in a movie. The, the building it and, and texturizing it, that's soulful. But what happened with me with WildFit was I've been on this 20-year journey um, discovering some principles about nutrition and psychology and all this kind of stuff. And, and I, was, I was distraught because I would go to somebody who was clearly needing help and I would share with them what they could do to make a change. Like, look, I can show you exactly what to do over the next 30 days, but almost never them, almost none of them would ever make it past about a week because willpower is a short-term muscle and people don't really understand that. And luckily for me, and, and this is an unpopular idea, but I've decided that Blaine, I've decided money can buy happiness. I've decided that it can. I, I've decided that it can. And I'm, I'm kind of saying that tongue in cheek because clearly there are many people that have money and not happiness. So it can buy happiness, but it often doesn't. And yeah. what I mean is, is that, look, if somebody's living paycheck to paycheck and they're in a shitty job, they're stuck in that job, right? Like they, what are they going to do? They're going to quit and they can't pay the rent. If they have one month of savings, suddenly they're like, yeah, maybe I don't have to put up with this anymore. When they have 12 months of savings, their boss better be nice to them. Right. So in a very real sense, that sense of financial liberty really does improve quality of life. There's no question about that to me. And what happened for me is not not long around about the time that we met is I suddenly found the bridge between nutritional information and food psychology and I didn't need to make money. So I started a business 100 percent on soul. 
100% on improving the quality of people's lives. No thought that it would ever be profitable. It was never designed for that. It was simply about changing people's relationship with food and improving their quality of life. And by the way, the, the recognition that we've received for that, for what we've done is obviously incredibly strong. I mean, the, the brand is a multi-million dollar brand and it's, it's in 130 countries around the world. But maybe a better depiction of this is that the Canadian Senate summoned me to Ottawa to, to give me a medal on the floor of the Senate for improving the quality of people's lives. That was the purpose of the business. And so to me, that's the soul has everything to do with why is it doing what it's doing? There you go. Why is it doing what it's doing? And yeah, it's a business. You need a business to deliver on the concept, obviously. But if you get the skew wrong, and I don't mean the SKU, I mean the, the, the focus skew, you know, off. It's a it's a fifty one forty nine proposition, yeah. Yeah. And and you want to and you want to default towards the soul, or you begin to lose all kinds of things. We're going to take a real quick break here. When we come back, I want to talk about WildFit um, because you know this is a really unique approach to a lifestyle that I think is just phenomenal. So we'll be right back. My guest right now is Eric Edmonds, and we will um, join him when we get back here. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to also invite you right now to go to blainebartlett.com. And on that site, which is my personal website, you'll see uh, services up on the top menu. I'd like you to click on Leadership Mastermind. Now, why I want you to do that is we have uh, structured a mastermind program that is very unusual and it is very powerful. And by going onto that site and clicking that link, you'll be taken to a landing page that is an invitation to join this mastermind. It's a 52 week long exploration of what it takes to be a highly effective leader in today's fast changing environment. You won't regret it. And if you've been liking what you've been listening to on these Soul of Business podcasts, how does one become a leader that can keep connection to the soul of business? That's what we look at. That's what we're about in this mastermind program. So again, go to blainebartlett.com and click on the services link. And there you'll find the link to the leadership mastermind program. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to this little commercial. And now back to our show. Welcome back. You are listening to The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett, my guest, uh, Eric. We were talking about um, WildFit before the break. Uh, I want to dive into this. You you started WildFit. Now, if, if my memory serves me, I've, I first did one of your first programs that you offered to the you know, Transformational Leadership, the TLC group. I think it was probably about five years ago or so, yeah. if I remember right. And it was, I mean, and I don't do diets. I mean, I've never done a diet in my life. I've never needed to, and I've never wanted to. Um, this was fun. I actually enjoyed it. And what's interesting to me is that there are aspects of it that still work for, I mean, and I say still work for me in the sense of I'm not rigorously, you know, organizing my life around the wild fit premise. And then there's a huge and on this, the stickiness of it. Uh, has been really profound. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with your approach to nutrition, your, 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 the research that you've done about how the body metabolizes food and what foods, yeah, 
There's a seasonality to it, which I think is just fascinating. And what I loved in particular was on the front end, hey, knock yourself out, go get that Sunday. <laughs> uh, and, and that addressed the willpower issue, at least that I'm speaking for myself here. It just kind of took willpower off the table. And then it became a, a, just a process of habituation. Yeah, you know, just kind of getting myself back to a point where it's kind of grooved. So that's my take on what's going on here. And you, in, in it's a multi-million dollar you know, business today. 130 some odd countries, I think you mentioned. Yeah. Talk a little bit about why WildFit and kind of the structure of it, because I, you know, part of my intent here is I want people to pay attention. I want people to look at this. Um, because there's a health and well-being component to this that I think is absolutely crucial for people to get a hold of. Let's start with this. That, um, the human experience involves this vehicle, and you only get one of the vehicle, and you can't trade it in, and there's only a limited amount of repair that you can externally do to it. It's a self-repairing, self-generating vehicle. And as long as you take care of that vehicle, it takes care of you. If you and I were going to, you know, jump in our car from, from your place uh, on the West Coast and we were going to drive all the way to New York, we would make sure that that car had appropriate levels of fuel. We top up the oil, make sure it's fresh, get the fluids right, check the tire pressure, check the tire treads. There, there are things that we would do for the vehicle to make sure that the vehicle could get us to the destination. And too often, we don't think of our bodies that way. We think of our body as this, you know, pleasure center. And, and, and so one of the things that we really identified is that um, pleasure, our, our current pleasure uh, systems, our current reward systems um, are, are not matched with our context. So uh, about four weeks ago, I was with the Hadza people in East Africa. They're proper hunter-gatherer nomadic um, people that live the closest representation of what our human history must look like. And it's a longer story, but I got separated from the main group. So I was just hunting with the chief and a couple of the hunters. And normally that doesn't happen. Normally I would have a guide with me and what have you, but now we're running. Like we're out at 20 miles now running through the bush hunting. And, uh, and I didn't train for this. Like I didn't realize we were going that big a hunt. Right. And so all of a sudden I realized like, I can't fall behind. I can't. Like if I fall behind, I am in Africa. I am hundreds of miles from the nearest technology. I don't have, I don't have a gun, you know, like I am in the middle, you know, like I had better keep up and it was pushing me well past my physical limits. And I started thinking a lot about leadership. I started thinking about all of these guys having faith that the chief was doing the right thing, was taking them a right level, all that stuff. And then suddenly it hit me. Their dopamine systems are a complete match for their context and their environment. Every single thing that they do that triggers dopamine moves them closer to either survival or gene propagation. Every single thing that they do. When they hunt, they get dopamine and serotonin. When their arrow hits the mark, they get a huge burst of dopamine and serotonin. When they tell the stories around the fire that night to train the young hunters how to hunt, they get more dopamine and serotonin. When they find berries on the tree, they get more. When they dig up root vegetables, they get more. Everything that they do to get dopamine is, uh, is moving them towards survival or genetic legacy. It's helping them to, to pass on their genes. Everything. In, for, in other words, for them, hedonism is a success strategy. It's a survival strategy. We have the same reward system that they do, except that ours is A, outdated, and then B, manipulated by the food industry in a major way. So we all have a powerful craving for sweet things. Now, you can consciously override it, but the truth is there's a hardwired desire, desire for sweet things. Why? Because fruit was good for us and seasonal. In other words, it was only going to be available for a couple of weeks. That craving was there to make sure you got as much as you could when you could because it was going to be gone. And now we bring that forward. 
to today when you can walk into any store and get sweet things in any minute at any time without expending any calories. Like it's, you know, we're, we have a gap to close. And what WildFit seeks to do is close that gap for people. In, in, in a sense, we talk about it as a rewilding process, reconnecting you with the way your body was designed to take in nutrition and the design and the way your metabolism was meant to work. And so a big part of that, of course, is, as you mentioned, teaching them about food, nutrition, and metabolism, but that's the dry stuff. I think what makes, I, I think you said sticky. I like that. The, one of the founders of Zumba, the, the total fitness craze Zumba, he did WildFit and he got on the call with me right away. And he goes, Eric, I want to help. You are about to do to the diet industry what we did to the fitness industry. You, everybody is out there trying to find a diet they can stick to, and you found a diet that sticks to them. And, and I think that a big part of that is these understandings we're talking about, but it's also this um, understate that I use for all of our courses called behavioral change dynamics. There's a very specific transformational process underneath WildFit that guides you step by step by step so that it feels effortless, it is enjoyable and engaging, and, and, and starts creating results. And results are the most motivating feature of being a human being. You start to feel progress and you're like, I'll keep going. Yeah. And so I think that's the, that's the nutshell version. You know, that distinction between something that I can stick to or something that sticks to me, that's brilliant. That's yeah. absolutely brilliant. And if you're listening and you are listening, if you're hearing my words here, uh, so, <laughs> you know, you've got a service or a product out there that is uh, something that you care about. You know, is it sticky in this context? Does it, you know, does it actually stick to your client, to your customer, so that you don't have to go out and have them look for something to stick yeah, onto yeah. them. Uh, that I mean, that, that's really kind of cool. Um, how many folks have gone through WildFit now? Just round numbers. I, I, I believe that we've had through the core ninety-day program, we've had about forty thousand people, um, yeah. and through our general master classes and stuff, probably somewhere between half a million and a million. Yeah, I mean that. that I mean that that trajectory is just crazy. I, I, yeah. I love I love that. I absolutely love that, and the impact that you're having is phenomenal. You know, what's um, funny is a bunch of our friends in TLC are always beating me up because I've got to be like the only member of TLC that doesn't have a book, right? Like every, everybody, Eric, you don't have a book. And I'm like, seems I'm doing okay without a book, right? And yeah. so one of our friends who will remain nameless for this conversation was really giving me a hard time about not having a book. And so I sat down and said, listen, I appreciate the support and the coaching and I will eventually, and I am incidentally, but I will eventually receive a book, but I will never write a diet book. Never, ever will I do that. They don't work. I do things that work. And I said, and by the way, just in case you want to compare books, if you figure that 40,000 people have done this program over the last six, seven years at an average price of about $1,000 a unit, and then you divide that by the price of a book, I've had a New York Times bestseller every week for the last seven years in a row. So yeah. I'm doing, you know, like I, 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 a book serves a purpose, but, but if transformation is really the goal, then I think that a digital training program, the way we've done it, is the right way to do it. And then there can be books to support that transformation, yeah. recipe books and instructional books and so on. Yeah, that's the kind of book that uh, I would be interested in seeing. I mean, there, there's, a, there's the how-to, here's the program. But the other piece of it is, and this is where the stickiness comes into me, uh, into play for me is, yeah, give me some, yeah, give me some recipes. Give me some stuff that I can actually, and, and, and that's part of the program anyway. I, I still drink my Alkagizer. Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, talk about it sticks with me. And, uh, you know, a little green drink here. Um, you are a master kite boarder. And I'm going to you know, jump the shark here and just kind of go to a completely different uh, arena here. Uh, I have seen you kiteboarding everywhere that I've ever seen you. Um, 
how did you, and, I, and I'm mentioning this for a very specific reason, and it has to do with lifestyle. You set up your life in a way that your life designed you in return. There's an ontological dynamic to the way that you're living your life. Yeah. And yeah, how do I design a life that designs me in return? And I don't know if you've done this consciously. I've got a hunch that there was probably some deliberation around this. How does kiteboarding kind of serve as an anchor for you on this? First, I, I want to disclaim, I'm not a master kiteboarder. I'm a pretty good kiteboarder. Oh, no. Hey, no, from, from my vantage point, you absolutely are. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so it's funny, I, speaking of books, I, I am currently working on a, a book that really talks about a lot of, about these exact principles. And there's a chapter in there called Conscious Hedonism. And the, the difference is that unconscious hedonism leads to things like cancer, heart disease, and debt, you know, and, and divorce and, and all kinds of other things, right? And conscious hedonism is where you take a look and say, my reward system is a bit flawed for the, for the current context, but if I apply consciousness to my hedonistic endeavor, then I can live the most incredible life. So here's an example. Yep. If I'm feeling depressed and, and lonely, then it might be easy to go eat a bowl of ice cream because that might make me feel better. But what people don't understand about that is that the body will so enjoy the dopamine hit that it will immediately say, I know how to get that again. I will trigger depression in order to get the ice cream. So, so you see, we have to be conscious of our hedonistic endeavors. And so for me, things like kiteboarding and I, you know, I've climbed Kilimanjaro seven times and I snowboard and I, I, I love to do, and I build sandcastles in front of my house just about every week. For me, I recognize that if my mind, you know, I hate to use a cliche story, but it's the story of the two woodcutters, you know, the two woodcutters. And if one of them get, you know, the one, right. And he's like, how did you cut through your pile so much faster than me when you kept taking breaks? I wasn't taking breaks. I was sharpening my saw. And, you know, our brain is the saw in this story, right? Our brain. And, and the thing is, you, you don't sharpen your, your saw while you're writing your book or while you're speaking on stage or while you're working or while you're in meetings. You sharpen your saw when you are doing not those things. And so for me, kiteboarding is the sharpening of the saw. It happens to be good for my body and it's great fresh air and vitamin D and all that kind of stuff. And I tend to look at things that I call uh, keystone behaviors. And, and what I look at as a keystone behavior is a behavior that hits multiple strategic objectives in my life. So kiteboarding, it's outside, it's in the fresh air, it's in the salt water, it's in the sunlight, I'm getting the vitamin D, it's good physical exercise, it's sharpening the saw, it's deeply meditative. And by the way, it's the, it's the official sport of entrepreneurship and, and the dot-com industry. So I meet the most phenomenal people. It's a broad spectrum keystone activity for me. I love that. Keystone activities. Folks, as you're listening to this, the solar business, designing a life that designs you in return, designing a business that designs you in return, the concept of value being actually two, two sides. Yeah. It's an accelerator for the person that's giving the value. And it is um, something that, you know, as a receiver, I, I, I mean, yeah, if I'm not feeling good about who I am as a consequence of, you know, imbibing in your product or service, um, you, you're going to have a problem uh, with me yeah. sticking around. Um, my guest today, Eric Admetus, uh, I'm going to close off by asking you a question. Sure. Um, how are you leaving it better than when you found it? Um, I think that one of my thoughts about that is that I, I really endeavor to be conscious about the emotional state that I'm in during an interaction. I, I made an observation that the things that my father felt necessary um, to apologize for were things that he said either intoxicated or angry. And, and so I, I've just made a decision in my life that I don't, I don't 
tend to do those things. I, if I'm angry, then I will say, like, for example, in a conversation with my son, I might say to him, wow, if we carry on like this, I might get angry, to which he immediately says, well, let's take a break then, because he's never seen me angry. He doesn't want to. And so one of the ways is I, I really look at this and think I want to consciously choose my emotional experience. What is the emotion that is, what is the emotional state that's going to support me going through this the best? And, 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 and in that way, I, I hope what I'm doing is creating the best possible experience for the maximum number of people that I'm interacting with. And that's true, whether I'm talking about, you know, my children in a given moment or, um, you know, or, uh, um, or my clients around the world. And, and, and then on a larger mission-based um, answer is that I, uh, I happen to believe that the vast majority of the suffering and pain and disease and, and mental disorders and depression that we are, are dealing with are diseases of modern living. They're, they're, they're not natural human diseases and not natural human suffering. And so my largest mission is to massively improve the quality of a billion people's lives by, by rewilding them, by helping them understand their relationship with nature and their understand their relationship with, um, uh, with food and to ultimately close what we call the evolution gap, the gap that is opened up between the pace of change in civilization and this much slower genetic change that we go through. And by doing that, I think we, by improving people's quality of life, here's the, the knock-on effect of it. Sure, they feel better, but you know what? Once they start feeling better, they have more soul. They make more soul for decisions. They become less consumer-oriented. They, they, they buy less merchandise. They, they, they live more fulfilling lives with lower ecological footprints because they're not constantly filling an emptiness with a Ferrari. I love it. I love it. Eric, thank you so much. Folks, you've been listening to the Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. You can find out more about what I'm up to at blainebartlett.com. Uh, check it out. Um, there's all kinds of resources there. And if you want to talk to me, uh, yeah, there's a spot on there where you can actually schedule a 20-minute conversation. So uh, let's, have, uh, let's have a conversation. Okay. Eric, thanks. Look forward hey, thanks to for having uh, me. Really good to see you. Oh, absolutely, my friend. Go, 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 go catch your daughter. I know she's yeah, flying. Go back to the circus. <laughs> go back to the circus. <laughs>